0: Welcome to The Healthy Beast. In this episode, I'm talking to Professor Edward Bullmore. He's a psychiatrist, a University of Cambridge professor, and he's written a book called The Inflamed Mind. This is all about the potential link between inflammation in the body and depression in the mind. So it's taking an old idea of healthy mind, healthy body, but giving it this scientific approach that could really change the way we treat not just depression, but all manner of different illnesses that we've been focusing on targeting the symptoms, whereas really there is this underlying inflammatory cause to so many, so many illnesses. It's really interesting to talk to him, I hope you enjoy listening. Professor Edward Bulmore, welcome. Thank you. Um, I've got your new book here, The Inflamed Mind, A Radical New Approach to Depression. Fantastic book, I really enjoyed reading it. It makes a very strong link between inflammation and depression. Now, my reading of it, the kickoff point, is that so far we've got the treatment of depression pretty, pretty wrong. Is that fair?
1: Not, I would say not completely wrong. I would just say incompletely right if I can put it that way. So we have have treatments for depression. Um, A lot of people get offered treatment with antidepressant drugs, like Prozac, the sort of serotonin-boosting drugs. We call them SSRIs. That's a very common treatment. Um, The other main option is psychotherapy. And both of those treatments work moderately well, on average. But I think the key thing is on average. So uh, people with uh, depression who are offered treatment with antidepressant drugs there's about a third of them uh, who don't respond very well. And so that's what I mean by not getting it completely wrong, but not yet getting it completely right. We're doing enough to help a lot of people, but there's still a lot of people that need to find a new way of treatment. I think the other problem that I see with the way that we think about and treat depression at the moment is we tend to think about it as if it's all one thing, you know, as if everybody with depression is depressed for the same reason Mm. And therefore, they're equally likely to respond to the same few treatment options. Um, but you know, depression is incredibly common. It's a sort of twenty-five percent uh, chance that each of us will become depressed in our lifetimes. So I like to think of that as you know, no family on the planet is going to be untouched by depression. It's it's very common. Is it plausible that something that affects so many of us has the same cause in each of us? I don't I don't think that's particularly likely. Uh, and one of the things that I'm driving at in the book is that there may be a subgroup. There may be some people with depression where inflammation is an important risk factor and is an important cause driving their symptoms. Uh, and that could open a door to a rather different kind of treatment instead of the current sort of one-size-fits-all approach where you go to see a doctor and you know, you're depressed and it turns out that there's SSRIs or psychotherapy, maybe if we had a slightly more you know, personalized approach, slightly more bespoke approach. So uh, you know, you came to see me as a doctor, you were depressed. I might say, well, you know, let's do a blood test. Let's see, is there any evidence for inflammation? Could that be contributing to your symptoms? And if so, then uh, that opens up a new kind of treatment with a, an anti-inflammatory drug or some other anti-inflammatory intervention that might work as a new kind of antidepressant. But you're saying
0: it's in a proportion of people who are depressed, but at the moment you're not sure how many of them and to what what extent inflammation is a cause. Is that the...
1: Well, we think it's about... So there's two groups of depression to think about. There are the the people that are depressed, um, and that is their principal problem. So they might be seeing psychologists or psychiatrists. And then there's another big group of people who have inflammatory diseases like arthritis or inflammatory bowel disease or psoriasis who will also feel fatigued and depressed maybe have some difficulty in thinking clearly they call it brain fog so there's two gr- there's two groups there's the the patients whose principal problem is depression and are seeing psychiatrists and then there are another group of people who whose principal problem is a is a bodily illness with quite prominent psychological symptoms including depression
0: Okay, so you're, you're splitting them into two groups then. Yeah. Um, and so the, how did you make this link first between, Let's look, so look at the group where there's this bodily inflammation. Yeah. How did you make this link first?
1: Well, uh, it's, kind of, it's kind of obvious, actually, I, that there is an association between depression and, and inflammatory disease like arthritis. I think every, if you talk to any doctor, they would tell you the same. You certainly, if you talk to patients with, those kinds of disorders, many of them will say that that's their main problem. Um, So there's no real controversy about whether the two things go together. The question is, uh, does the inflammatory disease in the body directly cause the psychological symptoms? And I think that's the new idea. In the past, what we've tended to tell ourselves in the the medical profession is that if if you've got arthritis, if you've got inflammatory bowel disease, and you're feeling depressed, you're feeling low, you're lacking energy, that's kind of a natural sort of psychological reaction. Um, I tell a story in the book about a patient called Mrs. P that uh, I met many years ago who was one of these kind of patients who has, she had pretty bad arthritis and it turned out she was also pretty depressed. And when I relayed that information to the senior physician in charge of a case, his reaction was, well, you would be, wouldn't you? You would be depressed. If you knew that you'd got a chronic uh, progressive disease that might lead to immobility or disability in the long term, so the old way of explaining the association is in terms of that kind of psychological reflection you know the the patient is basically depressed because they're thinking about what it means to have a bodily illness and they the new they way of thinking is that the bodily illness causes depression more directly it causes the depression because it is a source of inflammation
0: and this is what one of the things I found fascinating was because it seems to have been you go into this in great detail it's fascinating the book it seems to have been for centuries that doctors separate the body and the mind Mm. they say you know so hence this thing this can only have got into the brain by you being sad about your condition Mm. But there was there was this thing you talk about the blood-brain barrier, yes. um, which I think most non-medics have possibly heard of in passing, but don't really know what it is. Mm. Um, so there's this idea that you you must treat the head the the brain and the body separately. How did that all originate, and do some people still think like that? Uh,
1: well, it it does go back hundreds of years. Uh, it goes back. Uh, in the book, I spend quite a lot of time talking about Descartes. You know the um, the seventeenth-century philosopher and mathematician mm. who uh, invented pretty much this way of thinking about the world as split into two domains. You know, we have a we have a mental experience. Uh, we have our own subjective uh, experience of, 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 of um, populated by ideas and emotions and memories. And then there's a, a bodily domain that which exists in the physical world, which is well, he talked about it as a body machine. Uh, So that split between a mental domain, actually in in Descartes uh, thinking it was originally a spiritual domain, but the split between there being a sort of mental compartment and a physical compartment does go back a very long way. It is very philosophically fundamental to Western medicine. And, you know, a lot of the great successes of Western medicine are predicated on that. I mean, you know, thinking about the body as a machine thinking about how genes and proteins and cells work together uh, and can be disrupted by disease and and, and treated uh, on that basis has been fundamental to a lot of the big successes that western medicine has achieved so we don't want to I'm not saying that all of that is wrong but it does create a gap uh, there is a, in the book I talk about medical apartheid it, it, it splits apart the experience of patients into these two separate domains
0: because one, it's one thing to treat the body as a machine in a scientific way, mm. but to give one particular part of that machine, albeit a very sophisticated part—the brain—to give that some sort of spirit. I mean, is, does it come from a scientific place, or does it come from this spiritual idea? This is what—it doesn't seem to make sense from a from a scientific point of view that one one organ would be separate, would not would not be subject to the same stresses and is there's other parts of the body?
1: No, I, I don't think it does make any sense. I mean, the body, the body, you know, at least the way I think about it, the the body is an entirely integrated uh, system. Um, but you know, we're talking really about the relationship between the body and the mind, and mm. I think that the mind has existed in a separate domain since Descartes, and it, you know, it's that idea is very still very obvious in how uh, medicine. Is organised, how doctors are trained, um, the way that patients can find health care. You know, if you've got, if you're somebody who's got arthritis and depression, which is not uncommon, you'll probably find that you have to go and see one kind of doctor in one hospital for the treatment of your joint pain and your arthritis uh, symptoms, and another doctor or psychologist in a, in a different hospital. Um, practicing according to a different sort of set of theoretical ideas um, to deal with your depression it's there is a sort of split uh, in Western medicine between how we deal with symptoms of the mind symptoms of the body and I think that is often to the disadvantage of the many patients who have both mental and physical symptoms
0: it seems a bit like there's a lot of kind of sitting on the fence with this because um, if you have a mental illness you 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 treat it as though it's an organ, so you can take you can take medication for it, and everyone ag- admits yes. th- agrees that medication has an effect, mm. and yet you're trying to access it via talking to people and yes. and, a- and addressing it in whether it's whatever kind of therapy it is. Mm. So it's almost as if we don't know where we sit with it. Yes, it's an organ; you need to do things like other parts of the body, but also you need to. Look at yourself, and you need to think about your life. Whereas possibly, if somebody just gave themselves all the things they physically needed, so they were, you know, they were eating right and they were sleeping right, and all these, all these lifestyle things. If everything was right with them, you were feeding the machine correctly. Possibly, a lot of the mental problems would go away. Mm. Um, and do you think it's possibly we've become too reliant on medicine that we look at that as the thing mm. to fix it?
1: Um, well, I think you've raised lo- there are a lot of points there I mean one one thing to say is men's sano incorporates sano it's an sort of old old idea in medicine goes back before Descartes, healthy mind, healthy body and you know when you talk about getting diet right, getting exercise right, sleep, lifestyle, and all of those kind of you know uh, largely physical um, uh, ways of w- ways of living, improving your not just your physical health but your mental health. That is a that's an ancient idea. That goes that goes back a long way, and I think there's uh, likely to be quite a bit of truth in that. But we don't really practice like that in the kind of post Cartesian medical world so much. Um, you know, we might pay lip service to Mensano, incorporate Sano, but in practice, we try and get bodily health sorted separately from mental health. Um, you're also right that there is a bit of confusion in the difference between how we think that mind and body might be separate from each other. And yet, actually, a very common treatment for mental symptoms is drugs, which must work through the body or the brain. You know, The drugs are not acting as some kind of you know, spiritual uh, intervention to, to make people feel better they're working through serotonin other molecules in the brain so that's a physical intervention it's working on the body machine and yet it has a mental effect that is that's something that you know conflicts a little bit with the the philosophical idea of dualism but we go along with it because it works uh, you know it, it you know it, it, but it doesn't uh, make the area any less. Any less confusing, um, you know that we we on the one hand treating mind and body as if they were separate, and yet one of the most frequent treatments offered for people with mental symptoms is, is, is physical and must be acting through the body. So there are, I think, a lot of um, a lot of confusion, a lot of fault lines in terms of how we think about mind and body in, in current medicine.
0: So the way forward that you talk about in the book is that you're looking to in cases where. The immune system is thought to be responsible to treat the immune system with mm. medicine, mm. rather than mm. what's generally currently done, which is giving things like serotonin. So mm. you're you're working on medicines to do to do right, that. Yeah. Um, so you think that and it could potentially affect huge numbers of people?
1: Yeah, it won't. You know, I, as going back to this thing about one size fits all. You know, I, I'm I'm I think it's very important to emphasize that, you know, even if this uh, new science um, of neuroimmunology, you know, the new idea that the immune system is talking to the nervous system all the time and inflammation can have effects on the brain which might directly cause depression, that theoretical idea, even if that comes through with new treatments, they won't be for everybody with depression. This is not going to be a panacea. you know, if we could find new treatments that worked for, you know, 10% of patients with depression who were not responding very well to existing treatments and had some kind of blood test uh, evidence for inflammation in their bodies. You know, if we could, as it were, target treatment more precisely on a subgroup of, of patients and offer them a new option in terms of an anti-inflammatory drug or, or other anti-inflammatory intervention, that would be a big step forward. Because again, remember how common depression is. You know, um, It's a huge number of people that are affected by depression. So if you could do something for 10%, you're, he- you're still helping a lot of people.
0: Mm-hmm. Go back to so you mentioned neuroimmunology, yeah. um, which you talk about again in the book. This is not something that was discussed until pretty recently, right?
1: That's right. Yeah.
0: Um, and in fact, so a link between the immune system and the brain. Because you, you talk about immunology, how it, it was one of the marginalised specialities in medicine, and but in fact, you think the implications, possibly, for immunology are huge.
1: Yes, unquestionably. I mean. So I'm 58 now. When I was at medical school, that was, you know, 25, 30 years ago. And immunology was, well, to my mind at least, quite obscure. You know, it was concerned with a few disorders, arthritis and a few other things, uh, were known to have an immunological root. Um, But in the 20 or 30 years since then, immunology has really Progressed enormously. I mean, you know, there's been advances in many aspects of science, but what's happened in immunology is, is quite extraordinary in terms of the level of detail we now have in, in, in understanding how the immune system works. And as we've got deeper understanding of the immune system, it's become clearer and clearer that it's involved in, you know, an enormous array of diseases. I'm not just the, th- you know, the handful of diseases that we were taught were immune related when I was at medical school. You know, it's implicated in, in, uh, in many other uh, areas of medicine. And if you look at where there's been sort of therapeutic success, therapeutic progress in finding new medicines, in recent years they've often targeted the immune system. So a lot of the new cancer treatments that are generating such excitement are actually targeting the immune system. They're helping the immune system recognize tumor cells uh, and attack the tumor cells. Um, and that turns out to be a more successful approach often than, you know, trying to find a drug that will kill the cum- tumor cells directly. Um, multiple sclerosis is another area. Uh, you know, that was, used to be thought of as a brain disease. It's now understood that it's really an autoimmune disease. It's, it's one of the many disorders where the immune system kind of mistakenly begins to attack the body uh, and do damage, in this case, to the brain. That is an area where there has been significant improvement in treatment options for patients because um, people have found new ways of, you know, attacking the immune system therapeutically, so it, it that so that it stops attacking the brain. Um, people are inter- interested in inflammation and heart disease, uh, inflammation and diabetes, um, and so it becomes natural to think, well, what about the brain? Uh, what about inflammation and Alzheimer's disease. What about inflammation in relation to mood disorders and, and uh, psychosis? Um, so inflammation uh, immunology has gone through an extraordinary transformation in my lifetime from something that was, as you say, a little bit on the edge, a little bit marginal, to a science that's in going to be increasingly central to medicine and, and I think is going to power a lot of therapeutic advances across a range of different uh, diseases the future. And it's on that basis that it begins to th- be credible that uh, the experiences of patients like Mrs. P, the experiences of people who've had arthritis and depression, that those uh, comorbidities, as they're called in, in medical parlance, where you have two kind of Symptom clusters, the the mood and the arthritis going together; that those could be causally related. That the inflammatory process that drives symptoms in the body also directly causes changes in the brain.
0: And how have they been received? All these um, new discoveries by kind of the rest of the profession.
1: Well, I should emphasise that I didn't make all these discoveries. In fact, far from it. I mean, I'm, so if you if you if you look back historically, the first people to start. Talking explicitly about how the immune system might cause depression. They were publishing articles in the early 90s, late 80s, early 90s. And I think at that time it was regarded as, you know, extremely flaky uh, area of science by most respectable physicians and, and, and biomedical scientists. It, people just couldn't believe that there could be a real connection, a sort of biologically mechanistic connection in the way that you know we'd understand it in the kind of body machine way of thinking about things between the immune system uh and mood so i think those pioneers you know uh pay quite a heavy price in terms of professional skepticism Mm -hmm. um and there's still a fair bit of skepticism but it is shifting um and that's because the science is becoming stronger and the evidence is becoming clearer in the in the book i tell a little anecdote about uh, when I got interested in all of this which was around about 2012 I remember talking to a senior colleague about about it and and how I was excited to think that this might be a new way of finding treatments for depression and uh, I remember him saying to me you know if you'd come to me with this idea five years ago I'd have thought you were crazy but now I'm not so sure and I think that captures you know the shift in opinion that has been happening in, uh, in the medical profession over recent years I, people are I think increasingly beginning to think that this could be interesting there are still of course questions to settle in people's minds but uh, there's no doubt that the, the you know the trend is to towards greater acceptance of an idea that you know 20 or 30 years ago would have seemed completely kind of off off the, off the of the planet really.
0: So that colleague um, doesn't think you're crazy. Does anyone else think you are?
1: Well, sometimes the people that think you're crazy don't necessarily come out uh, and, and say that uh, you're crazy. But I think that I've been struck actually by following the publication of the book. It, in there hasn't been a lot of uh, pushback I mean, I think there are, you know, you can't really talk about depression or mental health in a utterly non-controversial way because it's a it's an important topic and people have strong and differing opinions about it. But I think that, you know, overall the message seems to have been generally well received. There have been two kinds of scepticism I I have encountered. Um, there is the sort of what you might call the hardcore biomedical Cartesian view that, you know, yeah. this, this connection between immune system and, and mood disorders still needs further evidence, particularly people want to see more direct evidence from genetics. But you're uh,
0: still looking for more evidence, aren't you? So we're I always talking you know, looking that's for not evidence. Evidence. Yeah. Is it? But no one's saying. I mean, to put it bluntly, no one's saying it's nonsense, are they?
1: No. No. I don't think. Well. You know. I mean, there's, as I say, there's two kinds of scepticism. There's the kind of hardcore, biomedical sceptics, yes. uh, and then there are also some uh, sceptics uh, who think that. Um, you know that this is all. Um, that that that's still uh, the best approach to. Uh, mental health symptoms is going to be through psychological interventions social interventions and they're a bit skeptical that this is a sort of a medicalization of an area that is best left to those kind of practitioners i don't know if that makes it clear so you you know in so in, in psychiatry so getting
0: to the brain via the brain via the ways you know by talking to people by therapies and so forth yes. or are there, s- are there still people who are hardcore behind you ever be about antidepressants or does everyone kind of think well they were the uh, the best option we had at the time that people as most of the profession got a bit cold on antidepressants
1: um, I think I think people have reached a I think most people have reached a sort of settled position about antidepressants which is that they're not perfect um, but they do work on average you know if you if you look at the the huge amount of data that's been collected uh, over many years, it's beyond doubt that antidepressants work better than placebo on average. Um, As I mentioned earlier, that is not to say that they work very well for everybody. And they don't seem to work um, at all well for quite a large percentage of patients. But on average, they work. They have side effects. Um, Some people can find them difficult to stop taking, um, uh, and they will always have, you know, their critics. But uh, t- t- to my mind, they're a lot like many other medicines in current use. Um, they're effective, but they're not necessarily shouldn't be the limit of our ambition. You know, there might be ways in which we could do an even better job. Hmm. So,
0: I mean, if I guess if people if people are suffering from depression, you you have to as a doctor recommend going through the usual usual paths of going to see their gp and so forth but is there anything that from from your research in this book is there anything that we can all learn for our general lives that you know the health lessons that come from this that might be that might go beyond depression because you know there's a there's a defined cut-off point when you are and aren't depressed but i think most people admit it's a it's a broader problem than that mm. you know there are people I think that that statistic you gave there the, the higher uh, the num- the percentage sorry would probably be much higher if you looked at people who have suffered some kind of the of of lesser effects of what must be linked to depression. So there, are there things we can learn from this book about how we can all make ourselves a, you know, healthier and happier in terms of our immune system?
1: Well I think it you know, I think it might focus people's minds on, you know, what it is to be inflamed. Um, and, you know, certainly, it, you know, one of the, I mean, that's I'm making that sound rather sort of dry and academic, but, you know, if you, t- if you talk to people about, w- you know, what is inflammation, I think most of us think of inflammation as what happens when you've sort of cut your hand or you've got a sore throat or you've you, some infection or trauma and you can see that that part of your body has become swollen and tender and red uh, and painful. Um, and that's, a kind of, that's the classical form of inflammation. I think what we now realize, thanks to the advances in immunology, is that that's really the tip of an iceberg and there are inflammatory processes going on uh, in the body which may be subtler. Uh, And they may not be. You know, you may not know that you're inflamed just, uh, you know, because there's a part of your body that's that's red and swollen and tender. It may be a subtler thing than that. There's quite a few things that cause this subtle degree of inflammation uh, that people might want to think about. Uh, You know, obesity, for example, is quite a powerful driver of inflammation. Um, Stress is quite a powerful driver. I think this is a very fascinating angle. Um, you know, we've known for years that stress drives or predicts depression, um, particularly childhood stress, childhood abuse or adversity, very not, very well known risk factor for later depression. But what's we're now seeing is that um, stress is sort of recognised by the immune system as a challenge to survival in the same way that the immune system responds to an infection or a trauma. So if you, if you, for example, do an experiment where you take normal people, perfectly normal, healthy people, and you have them do something sort of acutely stressful, like public speaking. Public speaking is something that a lot of people find stressful. If you do an experimental version of a public lecture and you measure people's immune systems before and after, you can see over the course of about an hour, normal people become a bit more inflamed when they're having to stand up and talk in front of others. That's a sort of social stress which drives uh, an inflammatory response. And if you've been exposed to more severe stresses than that, if you've lost you know, a partner or you've lost employment, uh, there's pretty good evidence that that increases your inflammation, it increases your risk of depression, and actually it often increases your risk of physical disease. So I think that, you know, is there a message for people to think about? I think, you know, the, the sort of simplest high level message is that uh, it's best to think about your health in a more joined up way. Everything plays into e- you know every other part of uh, your overall health your social environment the stresses you're under will have effects on your immune system uh, your immune system is is also going to be sensitive to you know obesity, body weight um, a lot of people are interested in, the role of the microbiome, you know, the, the fact that the gut is full of all of these bacteria, um, and, and, and the composition of the microbiome is sensitive to diet. You know, if, you're, if you change your diet, you change the, 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 the bacteria you have living in your gut, maybe that triggers a different kind of immune response from, from, uh, from the inflammatory cells that are lining the, the gut. Um, so all of these things are joined up, in a way that I think traditionally we've neglected, because as we've talked about before, you know, at least from a medical, a Western medical perspective, we've tended to kind of split the mind from the body. And then within the body, we've tended to split the gut from the immune system, from the nervous system. You know, we've we've, we've sort of divided and conquered in the Western medical tradition. And I think one of the uh, implications of this book is that actually health is, is very much a kind of um, is something that we might approach in a much more integrated way in future.
0: Well, you, ex- you explain at great length what inflammation is and I think this in itself is important because you talked about inflammation on the skin or in the throat which we all mm. see which we all understand that's what inflammation mm. is but if everyone else is like me I hadn't really thought beyond those mm. kinds of inflammation mm. so to kind to think of it as this thing that's going on throughout your body mm. including the brain mm. it's un- it's made me think a lot more about the th- the impact things have on you mm. because i think you're i think everyone's aware of how you know being st- being stressed makes them feel feel generally worse and you, know, mm. you, know, you don't know where where things can manifest themselves and eating badly obviously makes mm. you makes you generally feel worse and not sleeping enough and having people be horrible to you know Mm. because you you Mm. you can't as you say people who've been abused and so Mm. forth but this idea that there's actually this physical process going on in all parts of your body Mm. um, is quite eye-opening to me and it's Mm. made me think a lot differently about you know what we can all do to lessen the impact of it across Mm. um, across our bodies.
1: well, it's eye-opening. You know, to be honest, it's been eye-opening to me too. I mean, you know, I w- when. You know, when I um, when I specialised in psychiatry, uh, started training in psychiatry, which is kind of nineteen ninety, thereabouts. We knew so much less about the immune system than we do now, and you know, th- the idea that, for example, there were inflammatory, uh, you know, a whole lot of inflammatory proteins or cytokines circulating through the body that could, uh, you know, send signals into the brain and so on. That was, atle- you know, completely inconceivable, uh, or it, see- it certainly was inconceivable by me in, you know, the 1990s. Um, it's it's really this growth of immunology and, and and our deeper understanding of how it works that makes this, this new way of thinking about inflammation possible. So, you know, I think it's great that you found it eye opening but you're, I'm sure you're not the only one because um, I mean even people that have like me been trained in medicine um, may not fully understand where immunology is taking us just at the moment because I really think it's um, it is going to be increasingly central
0: um. i mean i think I think if if you if you're right and it sounds like there's good evidence that you may well be I think that this this integrating of health with medicine is something that really needs to happen because I've spoken to a few doctors about um, what they learnt about nutrition for
1: example mm, nothing yeah. um, all uh, all I was taught about nutrition was vitamins and calories you know you need a certain amount of basic calories and you need a certain number of vitamins
0: a lot of people the only um, I mean some people yeah they, they're obsessed with their health and they read everything and so forth but some people, the only person they'll talk to is the GP. Mm. You know, that'll be there mm. talking to someone about their health. Mm. And you know, they may be lucky, the GP may be all over that kind of thing, mm. but uh, that would be the GP's choice to have yeah. learned those mm. things, as far mm. as I can tell. Mm. Um, so if, if your kind of one health professional is only focused on fixing things that are broken in the mm. best way, in the very best way they can, rather than you know, giving you the building, helping you. Mm. Um, have the building blocks to be healthy yourself mm. I think it's it, it's a problem it's not it's not any doctor's fault but mm. I think the, the system as it mm. is you know, we, um, you know we don't think a lot of people don't think about the health until something goes wrong mm. then they go to get it fixed mm. and that person perhaps it's a, it's a sticking plaster to the next thing going mm.
1: on yeah it's been interesting to me you know when the since the book com- came out I've had quite a lot of people contact me um, who I don't want to tell me their own stories as patients, or are, you know, are talking about people close to them who've had problems. And I, I think this idea that we need to take a more joined-up approach, particularly to you know, mental and physical health, is I think it resonates quite naturally with a lot of uh, patients or people who've been close to to patients with with both mental and physical symptoms. So, from a patient perspective, I think it's In a sense, quite quite natural. It's quite an easy step to take. Uh, I I think it's a bit you know it's more it's more disruptive from the medical professional point of view because you know of the way that services are structured, training is organised, and so on. Um, So I think you know I think if the, the idea takes root and we can see you know increasing evidence that there are real health advantages, real therapeutic benefits in, you know, allowing for a greater sort of interplay between um, the body and the mind, perhaps through the immune system. I think that will be quite welcome to many patients. Mm -hmm. I think it might be a bit more of a challenge for some parts of the medical profession to take on board, or it might involve some, you know, reconfiguration of how we deliver services. So I'm not saying it's necessarily an easy fix. On the, on the, Sort of service delivery side, the professional side, but I think from the patient point of view, it's got a lot going for it.
0: One more lifestyle question: um, you mentioned obesity, mm. but in terms of specifics of diet, sugar mm. the, um, gets mentioned all the time now. Mm. I think often with good reason in mm. health terms. Does mm. it have specific inflammatory responses that make make it worrying for you as a? Uh,
1: not that I know of. Um, But, you know, my, and and I think think people are generally very, very interested in this whole diet microbiome inflammation connection, uh, which could have implications, you know, not just for mental health, but physical health. (coughs) It's not an area I know particularly well. My sense of it, looking at some of the research that's been published, is that, yes, it's Seems clear enough that diet can change the, the microbiome. It can change the bacteria you have living in the gut. What I don't, I haven't always seen, is such clear evidence that that has an inflammatory or anti-inflammatory effect. I mean, there are, you know, there are plenty of books that you can buy or diet guides that claim to reduce inflammation or to have some inflammatory benefits. I don't think all of those. Um, are equally well evidenced, if I can put it that way. I think we need to do more. So
0: you're, you're sceptical about any of the anti-inflammatory sorry. diet books? Sorry.
1: Well, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say I'm sceptical about all of them. I think the basic idea that diet, through the, the microbiome, can have effects on the immune system. Conceptually, I, I, I've got an open mind about that. I can believe that's true. But I think we need. I think it's very important to stay scientific about all of this and, you know, uh, avoid trading in false hope. Um, I think it's an interesting area where we need to do more science. We need to understand if it's true that diet changes microbiome in a way which causes pro- or anti-inflammatory changes in the immune system. I'd really like to understand that a bit more deeply.
0: You were talking in another interview about about yoga and meditation you were asked about yoga and meditation and how you weren't talking about yourself but saying the medical profession is skeptical until mm. they've seen yeah. evidence for yep. things but i guess with diet and exercise there's a sense with if it's clearly seems to be healthy for you then people can make their own decisions well, that's, and then tr-
1: yeah. that's right there's, tr- there's a lot of tr- there's a lot of truth in that i mean diet yoga meditation these things are you know cheap they're safe um, there's not much of a downside to trying those kind of lifestyle approaches and seeing whether it makes a difference for you so it's not, I, I wouldn't um, you know I, I wouldn't you know try and prevent anybody who's interested in trying out those approaches from doing so because you know I can 't see much of a downside as I've already said but from a sort of scientific point of view I would like to understand a bit more deeply how they really work and I think you know one of the ideas that I floated in the book, which might seem a bit kind of speculative at the moment, is that if we understood more clearly how, for example, meditation or yoga changed the activity of the immune system, conceivably we could use that to provide a kind of biofeedback loop, if you're familiar with that concept. So, you know, you could, how do you train to meditate? How do you train to, how do you, how do you, Learn to practice yoga most effectively. You know, maybe one way of of targeting people's training in these techniques is to give them feedback in terms of the effect that it's having on their immune system. Mm. I mean, if you if you could meditate and show that that had the kind of opposite effect to public speaking. You know, mm. uh, it made your immune system less stressed, um, and you could measure that quite quickly. I think it would be. Quite a uh, powerful way to get people into the zone. Could do some um, yoga trials with people. Yoga so trials, if,
0: uh, why not?
1: I think we should. You know, I you know I, th- you know, I think it, I think I'd love to see more of that sort of science happening, and I think that would serve my kind of you know skeptical need to understand things at that level. But I think it it could also open up a sort of a new way of making those treatments perhaps even more effective.
0: Fantastic. Well, the book, The Inflamed Mind, A, n- a Radical New Approach to Depression by Edward Bullmore, is the paperback's in the shops. January. January. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much for talking to Okay. Together. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much to Professor Edward Bullmore. The Inflamed Mind is out in paperback in January. Find out more at the inflamedmind.co.uk. Thank you very much for listening.